0: Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast exploring urgent and essential issues domestically and internationally. Today, we explore a range of these, from the US election to the COVID-19 crisis. The virus continues to rage and spread, even as the efforts to bring proven vaccine to the people is showing signs of success. As for Canada, we continue to find our place in a world of big fish. On the one hand, we are trying to face down the threats of co- coercive diplomacy by, by China. And on the other, we face a different leadership, possibly a friendlier relationship under President Biden in the U.S. All I can conclude with certainty is that the path forward is uncertain.
1: Absolutely, Senator. We live in very daunting and uncertain times with so many questions that need to be answered. How will a new president change the tone and tenor of Washington? How will countries distribute a vaccine so that all countries can be released from the scourge of the pandemic? And how do we get the two Michaels back from China? And what is the best best way to deal with this emerging superpower? These are just some of the questions that we asked Dr. Besma Momani, a renowned expert on foreign policy. Let's get to the interview.
0: Hello, everybody, uh, and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Besma Momani, uh, who is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo and well known uh, to many Canadians who read her comment, her regular commentary on international affairs and starting with international affairs. Obviously, let's start with what's on top of everyone's mind, which is the results of the US election. Basma, if I may call you Basma, were you surprised by the results? And what do you think of President Trump's refusal to accept the results for the U.S. as a in in particular, but for the democracy project as a whole?
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on, on the podcast. Um, really, this is uh, a great pleasure. You know, I'm a great, great fan of your senator. So it's always a treat to be with you. Um, let me just, I mean, I think. What stands out to me is, I think, uh, is frankly, we didn't get the blue wave that everybody thought we would get. You know, I think this is really important for us to remember, and I'll, I'll lead to the very last part of your question, because it really ties in. Which is, you know, despite the fact you had 200,000 people who died at the hands of, I think, incompetency of uh, the presidency. and. An individual who, frankly, I think, even if you uh, like his policies, you could at least agree, did not hold the office in a dignified manner. All of that combined, and you still did not get an astounding victory for Trump, for Biden, sorry. That yeah. really says a lot. And in fact, if you want to drill down the numbers, because you got to go beyond the hype here, and I'm an academic, so I'll try to do that. You know, uh, Trump got more people out to vote for him right so he did better overall than last time um he actually did better than last time with a lot of uh, visible minorities which i know people don't want to talk about but there are continue to be uh, some communities um that did vote more for him than last time and so there's something there that i think we need to talk about in american politics that is frankly disturbing right that trumpism that bombastic uh you know very A showman-like, which I think is again, you know, not uh, a dignified way of holding the presidency, with the incompetence, was still able to do so well, is frankly scary. What does that say about the United States? And I know that many of us have friends across the border and we sort of talk to like-minded people, but I think we need to recognize that the United States, that there is a strong Part of the population split right down the middle because this was not an you know, outstanding victory for, for, for Biden. Says that the country is still very polarized and Trumpism and what it comes with, which is a very populist nationalist uh, type narrative, is very well in alive throughout the country, and that should concern us because you know with all its flaws, the democratic process there, you know at least they held on to this notion that they were the vanguard of a liberal democracy. That's quite frightening because I think we also, in many ways, viewed that liberal democracy also means that one is committed to the principles of liberal democracy, like a free media, like strong civil society, uh, like equity on so many things, whether it's you know racial equity to um, to gender equity, which I think on all fronts he's a disaster. So how is it, right? I mean, it just says something about the United States, and I think we're going to be, uh, as academics at least, analyzing uh, this liberal term. Uh, that continues to sustain
0: Trump and Trumpism uh, for a very long time. So from the point of view of Canada, I sometimes think that the divisions in the United States are baked in because they only have two parties, whereas we and other similar liberal democracies have more than one party. And so there is a necessity to compromise, to build consensus. Um, can you comment on, on, on that? I mean, they did have a small percentage of independent voters who may have swung the election one way or another, but this abiding construct of US politics between red and blue, it, is that not an inevitable march towards inevitable divisions?
2: Yes, I mean you could say that. Um, certainly I think that's you know a valid argument. there's something to be said about having, you know, a multi-party system. Um, I'm a big believer in it, and I think you could even go as far to say, you know, a European-style proportional representational system, which really actually encourages um, you know, many different kinds of parties to sort of be able to be more broad based and, and not kind of push everybody towards this mushy center, which is really what you get in terms of what's on offering. Uh, from the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, you know, I, I know. I think this time around, you could say it was a stark difference because of these really different personalities. But there is a purple in the United States. By that I mean, you know, the red and the blue kind of, are very much this, there's a purple, mushy purple, that, you know, is swayed by this kind of personal politics. And in fact, I'll even take this one step further. If you look at how many American voters uh, went to the polls, In this just last round, they many voted for a Democratic president, but still a Republican governor, Republican state representative. So, I mean, there's something there that says that, you know, they're not getting a full menu of ideas and options. And there's really a centrist. For lack of a better term and centrist to them and i have to point out is probably a little more right to what canada would consider center right so there's a really interesting component there that people still tend to fall in that purple which is really i think a lack of options in terms of discourse um you know certainly you know social media has opened up opportunities for people to hear um a whole you know milieu of different kinds of ideas but still if you look at you know, the mainstream media and you look at sort of the discourse, but it's still pretty really pretty much stuck in that purple. There isn't a big variation. And I think that's a disservice to 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 any voting public uh, when you're really just presented with kind of the same menu of options.
0: Let's get your thoughts on President Trump and the Republican parties as a whole refusal to accept the results of the U.S. election and what that could mean for the democracy project in the world as a whole, as opposed to what's happening in the United States.
2: Yeah, I mean, the transfer of power, this idea of a peaceful transfer of power by uh, respecting the will of the people, you know, is really the essence and core of what a consolidated democracy is, you know, a true democracy. Isn't one that just believes in, you know, voting. Uh, that's of course a principle, but there are all these other components of it. And I would add to that free media. I would add, you know, you know, respecting the role of civil society. And there's lots of that I think is part of a liberal democracy: the free, independent um, judiciary, of course. But also in there is this idea that an incumbent comes in when an election happens. He or she respects the will of the people, and there's sort of this orderly transition. This is really rare for the United States. Really, really rare for the United States. And it says a lot about how polarized the country is. And I would go one step further to say it really shows how Trumpism is, uh, you know, imbued with, and I, I dare say I follow some of these, these people who sort of advocate Trumpism. They really feel that, you know, the blood of God is on their side, that there will be a reckoning. There's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> very dangerous kinds of arguments um, that are being proposed by them and you add to that you know unlike the most consolidated democracy people are well armed in the united states i mean we can't ignore that we can't ignore that this is a country that has a lot of weapons in the hands of people and many of them are military grade and you have this very strong undercurrent of american politics that's quite unique and consolidate democracies, which is a huge uh, distrust of federal government. I mean, this is this is really interesting. You know, this lack of public trust in the government. In fact, the very principle of why people are in the United States is in this—not to protect you against, you know, the violent criminal, right? No, the Constitution was written in a way to protect you against the tyranny of government. And so that really is a powder keg. I mean, I. I'm very pessimistic and as I always say, I really hope I'm wrong. That <laughs> this is not the perfect storm of dysfunction brewing in the United States. But as an observer and as a very happily outside observer, not being in the United States, but very saddened and scared for what it means for us because we're just next door and we all have family and friends across the border, let's be frank. Really hope I'm wrong. But there is something cooking there that is really disturbing.
0: That is really both disturbing and fascinating. Um, Let's move on to the reaction to uh, the election outside of the United States. Today you had an article in the Globe. You wrote that there is no joy in certain capitals in the world on the election of, of Joe Biden, notwithstanding Trump's refusal. And and you talked about the particular interests in certain capitals of the world, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc. And it seems to me that most of these states have engaged with President Trump on a transactional basis. Uh, do you believe that, you know, and we will continue to see this trend in politics, which is. You know one step forward if you if if you wash my hand i'll wash yours as opposed to what has normally been you know sort of a, a a general agreement to the world order as a whole yeah that's a great
2: uh and i think you know with the with the rise of populist nationalists globally which is not didn't just happen with trump but trump is certainly a factor um and we still see many of those uh, populist nationalist leaders in place across the world That kind of personal politics uh particularly in liberal democracies which are increasingly becoming illiberal this idea of sort of like you know let's let's sign it uh one-on-one and and make it happen despite the fact you have institutions to go through yeah that's a trend Um, and it's a disturbing trend because again the essence of liberal democracy is the respect of institutions is the respect of due, of of ensuring that things go through for example legislatures and, and that is all being eroded today um, by a number of even uh, you know, traditional liberal democracies. And I think that's really something to keep our eye on. Uh, and it's not something we're used to, uh, sort of even as political scientists who kind of study this, we tend to look for the machinery of government. And we don't, we don't have a, uh, often, and I'm even giving too much of inside baseball of how we operate, but we don't tend to look at personalities. You know, we tend to really think about these things as they're bigger than just one individual, uh, and that probably was the case for a you know our our craft as political story, very long. time. But increasingly, that's no longer what we see. Uh, what we see is that personalized form of politics is starting to explain a lot. Um, and sometimes, despite the geostrategic argument, which is one that you know may not necessarily be you know one that would be the easy uh, you know. Uh, thing to look for. Often it's about these, and I hate to use these words, but these bromances and these great, you know, personalized types of politics. It, it's amazing to me. Journalists have historically always kind of looked for that. That's kind of been their lens. As political scientists, we tended not to do that because we, we didn't really think of it as just, you know, one person that you know, dictated a policy. It was about a machinery. But if you bypass that machinery, yeah, that, that personal style of politics becomes more important to look at.
1: And and what what role does the you know, sort of the other side of the equation you know for liberal democracies like Germany like even the UK although you know Boris Johnson and maybe uh, President elect Biden haven't always seen eye to eye uh, but you have Canada obviously involved uh, you know they've all uh, France as well and and they've all either some have talked to the President elect Biden uh, but some have also or at least given their well wishes through Twitter or other statements. Uh, what can be done for liberal democracies to be able to combat the forces that you, are, you just described and, and to, I don't know if it's going back to an old world order or creating a new one or whatever the, the term might be, but what can liberal democracies do together with a, with a new mm-hmm. president down in the United States?
2: Well, I mean, one good thing about Biden, uh, and I'm not a fan of all of his past policies. But you know one thing about him that I think you can say is he's committed to multilateralism. Now, I do want to be you know a little uh, you know push this a little bit because you know the United States has often used multilateralism to disguise its own state preferences, right? So you know we have to be a little discerning here, but the 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 multilateral track for Canada is always beneficial. We like to deal with international rules and norms. We like it because it protects us. It protects us from, you know, as, as, uh, you know, the once prime minister said, sleeping beside the elephant, you know, we need these kinds of rules codified. We need to know that there's a process and sort of the dispute settlement mechanism is like a great one with, you know, trade, right? It's a great opportunity to use the courts to have our battles. We don't want to necessarily have a shouting match with the White House, but we want to have these mechanisms where we can take our grievances. So that is, I think, something that we will always find very beneficial. But the challenge here, I think, too, is that the world is increasingly populated by these populist nationalists who have, you know, spent their careers um, throwing a lot of shade at these uh, multilateral organizations, belittling these organizations, um, calling them corrupt, which again, they're not innocent bystanders, but still, they're what we've got. Uh, and we've just seen it in the past little while I know one of your questions might talk about the pandemic but you know the way we've sort of in the talk with the who you know, we've undermined you know one of the most important scientific health organizations is it perfect no nothing is perfect right there isn't an international organization that's perfect because we're not perfect but you know these are what these are the organizations that we've got and we need to work through them because the kind of global public goods and collective action problems that we'll be facing are just going to be compounded by the nature of the system. And so populist nationalists have really done, sadly, an effective job in really undermining the legitimacy of those organizations. And that now, even though we have one multilateralist back at the helm at the White House, I don't think we've got back the spirit of engagement in those organizations. And I'm really saddened about that.
0: Desma, let's move on from multilateralism to bilateralism, which in and referring in particular to the relationships between Canada and the United States. We all know how important they are. They are our biggest large. They are our largest trading partner. Our cultures are very intertwined. We have families and friends. We move. Usually with ease back and forth and I talking to many Canadians, I know that we will heave a sigh of relief at the return of normalcy, civility, modesty, humility, all the all the characteristics that Canada is 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 appreciated for and appreciates. But will the change in tone be accompanied by a change in substance? on matters of trade and our aspirations to get our, our, our two uh, Canadians out of jail in China?
2: I mean, I think you need to buckle up because that, uh, the fact that, that the United States is very polarized, but it has under Trump become far more introverted. I think the consciousness of trade as a weapon um, is something that they've now appreciated as a public and as a populace. And although we sort of appreciated being sort of this benign neglect, like, you know, Canada was all oh, this nice country to the north of us. And, you know, you know, it's not uh, it's not a threat, so to speak. Um, but I think we have a very different United States today where that sentiment no longer exists. I mean, I was born and raised here and I remember like it was yesterday driving to Buffalo and all we had to do was just say Canadian, Canadian, Canadian. I mean, that kind of. You know, seamlessness uh, may be a nostalgic thing that we all remember, but that doesn't exist anymore. And I think we need to be prepared for that because it is going to be really rocky, I think for a few years and and maybe maybe it's even permanent. Um, That's why we need very strong rules like the USMCA. We need uh, NAFTA rules that protect us, that we feel comfortable with, because I think you're going to get an introverted United States that increasingly doesn't want to in their language because this is the populist name language and it's very prevalent they don't want countries to free ride um, on their success they don't want to have to give up on um, trade advantages just because you know this country or that country is a friend and we're included in there so I think we need to prepare um, for a really rough rough few years if not permanent I mean I dare say it might be a permanent feature of our, you know, bilateral relations, which is that you know the the trade advantages we once had um, are now going to be scrutinized at the very local level to the national level.
1: And on, on particularly on China, I I would I really would hit like to hear your your perspective on the two Michaels and 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 how how do we you know how does Canada get them freed from China? Um, you know, we have parliamentarians sort of split on this in a lot of ways. Some are calling for Magnitsky-style uh, sanctions to be placed on certain officials within China. Others are, you know, actually have have advocated to let her go, uh, uh, let the Huawei executive to go. Um, and you know, one of the things that I always thought was tricky for Canada was that, you know, with President Trump in power, you didn't necessarily have someone that you felt comfortable having your back when you're having negotiations or having conversations with a, such a strong power like China that you know one day you could be uh, you know they, he could be supporting you the next day he could throw you right under the bus. Um, so I'm wondering if from that perspective, does the change, uh, you know going to President-elect Biden and President Biden down the road help with that and help with Canada you know, have a relationship with China, and in particular, and maybe actually free the two Michaels and, and, and other Canadians that are in detention.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the toughest diplomatic spot the Canadian government is in. Frankly, it is really, really tough. I mean, I'll, I'll just break down the few questions that you had. I mean, on whether or not we should release Meng. I mean, I think, frankly, it would make a mockery of the of the international legal system if we did. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that's a hard, that's a really bitter pill to swallow. Really bitter pill to swallow because it would be, and we know, we clearly know it's a tit for tat. So you know, in essence, you know, it becomes like an easy logical thing to to solve in one's mind. Uh, the two Michaels are clearly hostages for for Meng, and it's look, we'll just release Meng, and we can have our two Canadians, valuable Canadians, back home. But with all hostage diplomacy, we all know that you create a market for this. You can't you can't allow it um, because frankly, you know, there are plenty of Canadians in China today, uh, some of which a huge community, of course, in Hong Kong. That becomes a real risk, that we just create a business model, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. for the Chinese government to just keep doing this every time they don't like what happens in Canada. We can't let that happen. I don't think it's to our benefit in the long run. Uh, whether or not
0: Biden, please, uh, um So Paul mentioned uh Magnitsky and Bill Browder was one of our first guests on this podcast and as you know the Magnitsky legislation freezes the assets of officials who commit human rights uh, abuses when their assets are located in Canada. They're also prevented from entering Canada. And Bill said that the beauty of the Magnitsky legislation is that it doesn't cause ruptures in trade uh, or diplomatic relations because they're targeted at an individual and not a state. Do you think that is correct and. Do you think that these kinds of sanctions are effective in curbing the bad behavior of corrupt foreign officials?
2: So I mean, I have great respect for for Bill Browder and his work, um, you know clearly. And I think as an academic, I would just kind of argue what more factual. Where has it worked? That part. I mean, I would love for it to work, um, but it hasn't worked, right? I mean, you know, we've 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 laid out all of these sanctions on a, a host of of Russian oligarchs, for example, where where of course. Uh, the Magnitsky you know principle first came from was out of the concern of what happened in Russia it hasn't changed you know regimes unfortunately and uh, we don't even have to talk about regimes but individuals um, you know is it going to change their behavior and actions because of this um, sanctions regime I don't think so I mean, we have very little evidence and, and one could apply you know the Magnitsky principle but even be farther than that and say that it hasn't worked in sanctions overall at large has not worked um, and changing the behavior of government. You know, it's it's, a, it's an old academic academic debate for, for political scientists, but it's one that is pretty well sustained at this point. Um, some point to South Africa as being perhaps one of the few examples, um, but overall we haven't seen it being effective. The other thing I would say is it really also depends on which country is issuing the target uh, sanctioned, and also is there a strong uh, connection with the money that comes to that country? So. You could argue, perhaps, you know, in the case of, for example, when we levied these kinds of, you know, against uh, against Russian officials, you know, Russians don't have a lot of money here. The Russian oligarchs don't have a lot of money in Canada. So that would be great coming from Cyprus. That would be great coming from, from uh. the UK because, yes, that's actually where there is some money. So the only principle here or the only argument I would say um, to where perhaps the Bitnitsky would be useful in Canada is that we do know that there is Chinese money in Canada. Uh, it is a place that where where Chinese money does come, and so maybe there it might work. But here's the other challenge: is unless it's multilateral, you know, they'll just move their money somewhere else. Um, and that you know, and, and China, I have to point out, unlike the Russians who do have a lot of their own money outside the country, China doesn't have a lot of their own money outside the country. Partly because of the constraints on converting that currency. And, you know, the Chinese one is not convertible into other currencies very easily. So it's not something that happens very easily as well. So again, it's, you know, it's a, I think it's more symbolic. I think it's effective and actually on the diplomatic side, issuing um, something that, you know, is a feel good um, and perhaps does good for our own sort of, you know, political positioning but is it effective i'm
0: afraid not let's move on to in the last uh, minute in the last 15 minutes of our conversation with you besma fascinating so far let's move to the pandemic so you know yesterday we heard some good news a vaccine may be available tested and proven vaccine may be available as early as next year. Canada is, of course, among a handful of wealthy countries that have pre-purchased more than half of the world's expected short supply. How does this position straddle our approach to international affairs. You know, we put ourselves out in 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 symbolic words maybe as 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 being part of the global world order and helping uh, other countries. And here we are, you know, looking after ourselves first, which is perhaps understandable, but I'd like your comment on that.
2: Well I do believe that Canada's participating in this COVAX uh, yeah. you know system where we are sort of helping some developing countries purchase some of the vaccines. But you know, this is a this pandemic is is a perfect, you know, global public good, or at least solving it and managing it. And ensuring that everybody's vaccinated is is the way to get, you know, frankly, an effective uh, effective immunity for everybody. And, and that's really the challenge is, you know, you're you're only as strong as, as the weakest link in the system. And so it's really, I think, incumbent on uh, world leaders to think creatively about ensuring that everybody's vaccinated, including those who can't afford to buy that vaccine. But there's also a whole host of other challenges here. I mean, I, you know, I'm not of these, I'm not of the group that puts a lot of faith in, you know, the vaccine being the kind of panacea that we're all waiting for, partly because also, even if we're lucky to have this, you know, at a, at a pharmacy, you know, in a year's time, and that's being very optimistic, the distribution and getting everybody vaccinated in time. I and mean, we're still looking at a couple of years and that's in the developed world who can afford the vaccine. There's a distribution challenge, supply chains, manufacturing. So we need to also think about how do we, and I, this phrase is something that I think people don't like to hear, but you know, how do we live with this virus? How do we start to change our behavior? Think creatively uh, about functioning as a society for a few years. Because I think we can't, we can't revert to a lockdown for three years it just it's not going to work but i think we're all and we're all sort of seeing seven months in yeah we figured out how to do a few things pretty well um but you know productivity is not the same uh, new ideas i mean i'm fascinated lately about sort of work in organizations where you know we have inertia working on our side like all of the great ideas and projects that we started seven months ago we're wrapping up we're doing fine on that but the new ideas now, you know, in person, that water cooler talk, the brainstorming. Um, so we need to also think about how do we how do we get back to the living? Okay.
0: So I, I want to um, ask you a question that is COVID related, but intersects with uh, the relationship you and I have as immigrant women. You recently co-authored an article about the impact of COVID-19 on immigrant women in the work workforce uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about that
2: sure I'm a I was born here but <laughs> I'm a child of immigrant so I guess second generation I mean in, th- in terms of thinking about that paper that I wrote I mean one of the things that uh is obviously we've started to really recognize um, the importance of disaggregated data um, racialized individuals in this country have borne a disproportionate burden. Of this virus and it's in multiple ways um you know part of it is we still know that some racialized communities are still poorer than others and poverty does not help you in fighting this virus uh, whether it's your baseline health uh, whether it tends to be more denser living arrangements intergenerational families all of that combined but it's also the work that a lot of racialized poor people still work and they tend to be in service sectors that are very front-facing And so you can sort of reverse that and say you know professional jobs you know jobs that allow you to use the digital the digital world uh, you know still tends to be there is a racial component there and what we found my colleague anna Ferrer and i we did some uh digging in in the labor market survey data uh, which is, is really interesting because it's as we're all trying to grapple with trying to find out the racialized aspect of of our world Um, it's one of the few data sets that actually holds that kind of information and I would only just make a plug here to say we need more of this health data just recently started to wake up to this but at the beginning of this pandemic we had no way of accounting for whether or not you know we had more black indigenous uh you know people of color women I mean all of the sort of marginalized or equity-seeking communities we had no way of determining you know, who showed up at a hospital, which is, you know, that's not the way to do it. We need to know this data because if you're going to fix a problem, you need to know who are the vulnerable communities. But going back to my study with with Anna and I, uh, when we dug through the data, uh, we found enormous racialized um, element to unemployment. And we're seeing the same thing with the recovery. Um, In other words, a lot of racialized women, particularly immigrant women, which is also another category, um, immigrant racialized women, are having the hardest time in the recovery process. Their jobs, and this is really important on the broader conversation about everything from automation to you know, the role of emerging technologies, their jobs are the most susceptible to being erased. And they're in retail, they're in the restaurant sector, um, you know, increasingly in hospitality and um, uh, accommodations so of hotels. And th- those are those are jobs that may not come back, and I'm going to point to the retail sector in particular. We're going to have a real, real awakening here to the reality that a lot of those jobs aren't going to come back, which means there's scarring, right? There's economic scarring, and what are we going to do? So we need to come up with creative ways to bring, you know, uh, racialized immigrant women back into the economy. And and I have to point out one last thing that's really really interesting about that data is that. In many cases they were highly educated this is not also an education factor but it also is a challenge because a lot of those immigrant women and immigrants writ large but more so immigrant women don't have the foreign credentials you know or have the foreign credentials but aren't recognized by the canadian work establishment which is a real problem we still tend to you know uh, have this great mantra of you know we want the brightest and the best and we we have this elaborate point system it's wonderful bring them to this country if you've got these great degrees but then they come here and the first challenge they face is well while well, your cb doesn't have canadian work experience and they're discarded that's not helpful that's not going to be a way that we get an inclusive not just economy but society as
0: well and 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 yet and yet besma i agree with everything you've said And yet I have to welcome uh, the government's uh, announcement recently to ramp up the figures on immigration so that we can catch up uh, from the from the highly reduced figures this year, because uh, most economists will tell you that immigration is part and parcel of our prosperity and the reduction in immigration has had an impact on our on our uh, post secondary institutions it has had an impact on the housing market it has an impact on prosperity uh, i welcome this you know 400,000 plus immigrants coming into canada uh, but the underlying systemic problems that you have uh, pointed out will continue uh, to um, to play themselves out um so My question really is, um, do we need to, in immigration, should it be business as usual? It seems to me that that's what uh, the government is doing. We'll bring in more people under the old order, but they're not addressing some of the problems that you pointed out.
2: Yeah, and I would just caution that I think we do more harm sometimes. Um, You know, I I think we do more harm when when we bring people under sort of false promise uh, and i do have relatives who are still immigrating to this country and i can speak to a few you know just a, a lovely couple who uh, you know my cousin and her husband who came uh from dubai um both with mbas uh worked in international companies and then came here and, and have struggled um in the past year and i don't think we we do them service to you know, and they're very happy feel very much welcomed I mean so much of our great you know uh newcomer story is as, as she said to me you know it's the first time obviously living in dubai where she wasn't a national but a, a worker um that she feels that she belongs and so you know the canadian spirit of welcoming new immigrants is alive and well but i don't think it was to the service of, of two new canadians who have mbas and feel very proud of the Accomplishments they made in, in the, you know, the UAE to come here to face this this odd challenge of being told, well, you don't have Canadian experience, and and the retort that she said to me is, but why did you why did you tell us to come? I mean, you know, why did you accept our application so enthusiastically with this point system and our two MBAs were used, and then you just basically discarded, you know, all of that year of years of international experience. So, I mean, I think that we need to do better uh it takes work and part of it is uh, in educating the private sector um you know in previous work that i've done when we talked to private sector and, and we tried to understand you know they often said oh yeah we want diversity it's a great thing uh, but they asked the odd question they said well you know we get these lovely new immigrants but we're not sure if they know the language if they know you know um the culture i mean and it's almost dismissive but it's you have to take it and, and, and use that to, to inform us in our policy making, right? So we need to do better. We need to do better there. Um, and I think we can, of course, there's always going to be unfortunately unconscious bias that somehow these, you know, these educated professionals don't understand the norms of our society, would not really know how to fit in, which is really, I think, wrong. Just if it's wrong. I mean it's not just misinformed. It's actually wrong. And so how do you how do you change that? Uh, it's a cultural shift in the private sector of course Um, so there's lots of work to be done on on inclusion but i think we need to focus on that we we spend a good amount of effort i think on integrating people um, but we also need to do a good job of also better informing the private sector of how um you know how to take advantage how to take advantage of this asset i mean it's a latent asset um, you know, and the last thing we want to do, and what I, you know, we can see from the data that I mentioned about, you know, racialized immigrant women, is that they're being underemployed. In other words, they're working in sectors and jobs that is not commensurate to their educational level, and that's a missed opportunity. There should be no reason why we, you know, bring an MBA to this country and put them in a receptionist position, and not to, you know, disparage any position here, but you know, that's the kind of thing that's happening. Is that they end up working in jobs that don't, you know, really match the education level that they had? That's a missed opportunity on us, on a collective economic, you know, good. Um, so it's incumbent on us to try to fix it.
0: That is truly, you know, a a, a, a problem uh, that has been known of in Canada for more than thirty years, and somehow we can't make any headway. It is truly wicked in 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 the real sense of of the word. I I, I want to, um, uh, you know, this week or very soon we will uh, be celebrating uh, the five year the five year anniversary of the arrival of Syrian refugees in Canada. I think you were part of that. I was definitely part of that. I sponsored close to 17 uh, Syrian refugees and, and and Created Lifeline Syria in 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 Toronto. It it's a moment of of national pride that makes me actually often weak at my knees. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we will experience that kind of a surge of empathy and compassion again, or was I it a one off?
2: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I would say history shows that we did, right? I mean, we look yep. at what, you know, how we received the Smiley community, how we received the, you know, the the, the Vietnamese. So, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, there's um, plenty of, of examples that show that we can be, and I, I mean, I think that was a, a wonderful moment. I mean, it really was a great, you know, time and moment, and it, it resonated globally in ways that I think you know, to anyone who's listening and watching needs to understand, I mean, it was so, it was a moment of Canadian pride. Uh, People across the world uh, looked at it like we were the most wonderful country. And I have to point out, I mean, you know, we took 50,000, and the big scheme of things, it wasn't a lot of people. You know, I mean, compare that 1A globally of countries that took up to almost a million, um, you know, think about Germany and so many Nordic countries, I mean, you know, Comparatively speaking, we didn't take a lot in, but even for what 50,000 is, I mean, I'm reminded of this figure that always oh, astonishes me. You know, there's 20,000 weekend visitors to Toronto every weekend outside. from this. So that just gives you an example of how, you know, small it was. Uh, but it felt big. And I think more importantly, what made it work was that it was this national sport of caring, like everybody took involved, you know, every church, every, you know, community group, every book club, you know, people really got engaged, and that's what made it work. And so you need that kind of, I think, bottom-up, you know, um, you know, empathy drive. But it's going to be difficult, um, I think, to do again. And there are plenty of um, communities that I think we need to think about. I mean, the Rohingyas. I mean, there's, I mean, yeah. endless. And that's one top of mind. Of course, we think of people stranded in Cox's Bazar, um, but certainly we didn't have time to maybe talk about, you know, the Uyghurs. I mean, there are so many communities that are facing horrors of the Assad variety out there that I think we could do we could do good Uh, we certainly could do good but I don't know if the appetite is there at this moment I don't I I dare say today it's not here partly because of all the fiscal you know worries that people have Uh, people feel very insecure about their own economic situation with this virus maybe the time isn't right but I do hope that uh, once you know this virus is under control and our economy is recovering that we could indeed, uh, you know, be that receptive
0: country again. I, I I look back at the five years of work bringing 50,000 Syrian refugees. And of course, it, it was wonderful for the 50,000 individuals. But I also think it was a moment where, uh, you know, where you could say, uh, we participated together in an exercise that brought our nation together in ways that we could not have imagined. So I take great pride in that, but I recognize that 50,000 is a drop in the bucket of the, of the millions of Syrians who were um, displaced and the millions of Venezuelans who've been displaced. We haven't done anything about them yet, or at least not mm. enough. Uh, and and I, I too think that that compassion may well Express itself again, but not in these times, so you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so my final question to you is, and I, I think you answered that sometime earlier in the podcast where you said you were relatively pessimistic about the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm an optimist. Should I have reason for optimism?
2: i you know i i I, i'm an optimist at heart i try to be optimistic uh maybe that's the spiritual nature of of who i am but you know i I mean i think uh we're looking at a decade of of economic stagnation and you know i'm a political economist by training even though i maybe kind of dabble outside of my area of expertise too much i'm at fault for that sometimes but you know the political economist in me looks at the fiscal situation the lack of economic growth um you know, trade, which is such an important part of how Canada, but, you know, a lot of countries grow, uh, workers' remittances, you know, crumbling. Uh, Look at the fact that, you know, so many developing countries today depend so much on tourism, don't have that. I mean, this is, and this is, again, the pandemic is the way you get economic, managing the the pandemic is the way you get economic recovery. And I don't think we're going to be, able to say we're completely out of the woods for a few years and you know a few years is a long time for a lot of people i I just want to remind people that you know for most of us our salary has not changed right most of us have that paycheck that's been coming in but you know most of the world are day laborers they they go what they go out and and fetch for the day is what is coming home that day and don't have savings so well, humbly speaking, you know, this is the great value of the privilege that we have as as, as a per- person speaking, as a professor. But certainly, I think Canadians generally, because there are mechanisms out there to support most Canadians, the world doesn't have that luxury. And so, there is going to be a lot of economic pain and suffering. Though, so, you know, the UN has already announced there are four countries on the brink of famine. I mean, this is this is catastrophic. So, from the development side. You know, I'm very pessimistic about where the global economy is going. Where development indicators, we're seeing option. You know, people already, you know, not sending their daughters to school again because of of the you know the 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 challenges that they face in terms in terms of being day laborers. I mean, all of these indicators of socioeconomic progress um, that we had, you know, assumed we getting better. I mean, it's not a perfect world out there, but we're sort of we could say we're getting better, particularly on lifting people out of global poverty those numbers are going to recede and that really that really keeps me up at night i mean you know it really keeps me up at night and it's not there's no easy fix because at the end of the day we don't have a vaccine at the end of the day we don't have everybody vaccinated and until we get there um these things will perpetuate
0: so we should all be keeping up at night and i take your point that we are the privileged few uh, and we don't really live the life of deprivation uh, that others do. Perhaps uh, Besma, we can circle back to you three years from now, revisit this podcast and answer the question again, dare we be optimistic about the future? Thank you so much. That was fascinating. And to our listeners, I will ask you to listen in often as we bring in new guests and send me your suggestions about who you would like to hear from. Thank you very much, Dr. Momani.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure and treat to to talk to you. You know that I I enjoy our discussion so very much.
0: Thank you you so much.
2: Bye-bye.